Welcome to Natural History Stories, a podcast of classic writings on natural history and nature observation. Our first four episodes take us through the John Burroughs collection, Birds and Bees, Sharp Eyes and Other Papers. Published in 1887, the works were written between 1875 and 1886. This episode contains Sharp Eyes and The Apple. In this episode, a new outdated common bird name, not explained in episode one, is used. The name used in this episode is titlark. This bird is now known to us as American Pipit. Sharp Eyes Noting how one eye seconds and reinforces the other, I have often amused myself by wondering what the effect would be if one could go on opening eye after eye to the number, say, of a dozen or more, what would he see? Perhaps not the invisible, not the odors of flowers, nor the fever germs in the air, not the infinitely small of the microscope, nor the infinitely distant of the telescope. This would require not more eyes so much as an eye constructed with more and different lenses, but would he not see with augmented power within the natural limits of vision? At any rate, some persons seem to have opened more eyes than others. They see with such force and distinctness. Their vision penetrates the tangle and obscurity, where that of others fails like a spent or impotent bullet. How many eyes did Gilbert White open? How many did Henry Thoreau? How many did Audubon? How many does the hunter, matching his sight against the keen and alert sense of a deer or a moose or a fox or a wolf? Not outward eyes, but inward We open another eye whenever we see beyond the first general features or outlines of things, whenever we grasp the special details and characteristic markings that this mask covers. Science confers new powers of vision. Whenever you have learned to discriminate the birds or the plants or the geological features of a country, it is as if new and keener eyes were added. Of course, one must not only see sharply, but read aright what he sees. The facts in the life of nature that are transpiring about us are like written words that the observer is to arrange into sentences, or the writing is in cipher and he must furnish the key. A female oriole was one day observed very much preoccupied under a shed where the refuse from the horse stable was thrown. She hopped about among the barn fowls, scolding them sharply when they came too near her. The stable, dark and cavernous, was just beyond. The bird, not finding what she wanted outside, boldly ventured into the stable and was presently captured by the farmer. What did she want, was the query. What but a horsehair for her nest, which was in an apple tree nearby. And she was so bent on having one that I have no doubt she would have tweaked one out of the horse's tail had he been in the stable. Later in the season I examined her nest and found it sewed through and through with several long horsehairs, so that the bird persisted in her search till the hair was found. Little dramas and tragedies and comedies, little characteristic scenes are always being enacted in the lives of birds if our eyes are sharp enough to see them. Some clever observer saw this little comedy played among some English sparrows and wrote an account of it in the newspaper. It is too good not to be true. A male bird brought to his box a large fine goose feather, which is a great find for a sparrow and much coveted. After he had deposited his prize and chattered his gratulations over it, he went away in quest of his mate. His next-door neighbor, a female bird, seeing her chance, quickly slipped in and seized the feather. And here the wit of the bird came out, for instead of carrying it into her own box, she flew with it to a near tree and hid it in a fork of the branches, 
then went home, and when her neighbor returned with his mate, was innocently employed about her own affairs. The proud male, finding his feather gone, came out of his box in a high state of excitement, and with wrath in his manner and accusation on his tongue, rushed into the cot of the female. Not finding his goods and chattels there as he had expected, he stormed around a while, abusing everybody in general, and his neighbor in particular, and then went away as if to repair the loss. As soon as he was out of sight, the shrewd thief went and brought the feather home and lined her own domicile with it. I was much amused one summer day in seeing a bluebird feeding her young one in the shaded street of a large town. She had captured a cicada, or harvest fly, and after bruising it a while on the ground, flew with it to a tree and placed it in the beak of the young bird. It was a large morsel, and the mother seemed to have doubts of her chick's ability to dispose of it for she stood near and watched its efforts with great solicitude. The young bird struggled valiantly with the cicada, but made no headway in swallowing it, when the mother took it from him and flew to the sidewalk and proceeded to break and bruise it more thoroughly. Then she again placed it in his beak and seemed to say, There, try it now, and sympathized so thoroughly with his efforts that she repeated many of his motions and contortions. But the great fly was unyielding, and indeed seemed ridiculously disproportionate to the beak that held it. The young bird fluttered and fluttered and screamed, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, till the anxious parent again seized the morsel and carried it to an iron railing, where she came down upon it for the space of a minute, with all the force and momentum her beak could command. Then she offered it to her young a third time, but with the same result as before, except that this time the bird dropped it. But she was at the ground as soon as the cicada was, and taking it in her beak, she flew some distance to a high board fence, where she sat motionless for some moments. While pondering the problem, how that fly should be broken, the male bluebird approached her and said very plainly, and I thought rather curtly, give me that bug. But she quickly resented his interference and flew further away, where she sat apparently quite discouraged when I last saw her. The bluebird is a home bird, and I'm never tired of recurring to him. His coming or reappearance in the spring marks a new chapter in the progress of the season. Things are never quite the same after one has heard that note. The past spring, the males came about a week in advance of the females. A fine male lingered about my grounds and orchard all the time, apparently waiting the arrival of his mate. He called and warbled every day, as if he felt sure she was within earshot and could be hurried up. Now he warbled half angrily, or abratingly, then coaxingly, then cheerily and confidently, the next moment in a plaintive, faraway manner. He would open his wings and twinkle them caressingly, as if beckoning his mate to his heart. One morning she had come, but was shy and reserved. The fawn male flew to a knothole in an old apple tree and coaxed her to his side. I heard a fine, confidential warble, the old, old story. But the female flew to a near tree and uttered her plaintive homesick note. The male went and got some dry grass or bark in his beak and flew again to the hole in the old tree and promised unremitting devotion. But the other said, Nay, and flew away in the distance. When he saw her going, or rather heard her distant note, he dropped his stuff, and cried out in a tone that said plainly enough, Wait a minute, one word, please, and flew swiftly in pursuit. He won her before long, however, and early in April the pair were established in one of the four or five boxes I had put up for them, but not until they had changed their minds several times. As soon as the first brood had flown, and while they were yet under their parents' care, they began another nest in one of the other boxes, the female, as usual, doing all the work, and the male, all the complimenting. A source of occasional great distress to the mother bird was a white cat that sometimes followed me about. The cat had never been known to catch a bird, but she had a way of watching them that was very embarrassing to the bird. Whenever she appeared, the mother bluebird would set up that pitiful, melodious plaint, 
One morning, the cat was standing by me when the bird came with her beak loaded with building material and alighted above me to survey the place before going into the box. When she saw the cat, she was greatly disturbed and in her agitation could not keep her hold on all of her material. Straw after straw came eddying down till not half her original burden remained. After the cat had gone away, the bird's alarm subsided till presently, seeing the coast clear, she flew quickly to the box and pitched in her remaining straws with the greatest precipitation and without going in to arrange them as was her wont, flew away in evident relief. In the cavity of an apple tree, but a few yards off, and much nearer the house than they usually build, a pair of high holes, or golden-shafted woodpeckers, took up their abode. A knot hole which led to the decayed interior was enlarged, the live wood being cut away as clean as a squirrel would have done it. The inside preparations I could not witness, but day after day, as I passed near, I heard the bird hammering away, evidently beating down obstructions and shaping and enlarging the cavity. The chips were not brought out, but were used rather to floor the interior. The woodpeckers are not nest builders, but rather nest carvers. The time seemed very short before the voices of the young were heard in the heart of the old tree, at first feebly, but waxing stronger day by day, until they could be heard many rods distant. When I put my hand upon the trunk of the tree, they would set up an eager, expectant chattering. But if I climbed up it toward the opening, they soon detected the unusual sound and would hush quickly, only now and then uttering a warning note. Long before they were fully fledged, they clambered up to the orifice to receive their food. As but one could stand in the opening at a time, there was a good deal of elbowing and struggling for this position. It was a very desirable one, aside from the advantages it had when food was served. It looked out upon the great shining world into which the young birds seemed never tired of gazing. The fresh air must have been a consideration also, for the interior of a high hole's dwelling is not sweet. When the parent birds came with food, the young one in the opening did not get it all, but after he had received a portion, either on his own motion or of a hint from the older one, would give place to the one behind him. Still one bird evidently outstripped his fellows, and in the race of life was two to three days in advance of them. His voice was loudest and his head oftenest at the window but I noticed that when he kept the position too long, the others evidently made it uncomfortable in his rear, and after fidgeting about a while, he would be compelled to back down. But retaliation was then easy, and I fear his mates spent few easy moments at that lookout. They would close their eyes and slide back into the cavity, as if the world had suddenly lost all its charms for them. This bird was, of course, the first to leave the nest, for two days before that event, he kept his position in the opening most of the time and sent forth his strong voice incessantly. The old ones abstained from feeding him almost entirely, no doubt to encourage his exit. As I stood looking at him one afternoon and noting his progress, he suddenly reached a resolution, seconded, I have no doubt, from the rear, and launched forth upon his untried wings. They served him well and carried him about fifty yards uphill the first heat. The second day after, the next in size and spirit left in the same manner. Then another, till only one remained. The parent birds ceased their visits to him, and for one day he called and called till our ears were tired of the sound. His was the faintest heart of all. Then he had none to encourage him from behind. He left the nest and clung to the outer bowl of the tree, and yelped and piped for an hour longer. Then he committed himself to his wings and went his way like the rest." A young farmer in the western part of New York, who has a sharp, discriminating eye, sends me some interesting notes about a tame high hole he once had. Did you ever notice, says he, that the high hole never eats anything that he cannot pick up with his tongue? At least this was the case with a young one I took in from the nest and tamed. 
He could thrust out his tongue two or three inches, and it was amusing to see his efforts to eat currants from the hand. He would run out his tongue and try to stick it to the current. Failing in that, he would bend his tongue around it like a hook and try to raise it by a sudden jerk. But he never succeeded. The round fruit would roll and slip away every time. He never seemed to think of taking it in his beak. His tongue was in constant use to find out the nature of everything he saw. A nail hole in a board or any similar hole was carefully explored, and if he was held near the face, he would soon be attracted by the eye and thrust his tongue into it. In this way, he gained the respect of a number of half-grown cats that were around the house. I wished to make them familiar to each other, so there would be less danger of their killing him. So I would take them both on my knee, when the bird would soon notice the kitten's eyes, and leveling his bill as carefully as a marksman levels his rifle, he would remain so a minute, when he would dart his tongue into the cat's eye. This was held by the cats to be very mysterious, being struck in the eye by something invisible to them. They soon acquired such a terror of him that they would avoid him and run away whenever they saw his bill turned in their direction. He never would swallow a grasshopper, even when it was placed in his throat. He would shake himself until he had thrown it out of his mouth. His best hold was ants. He never was surprised at anything, and never was afraid of anything. He would drive the turkey gobbler and the rooster. He would advance upon them, holding one wing up as high as possible, as if to strike with it, and shuffle along the ground toward them, scolding all the while in a harsh voice. I feared at first they might kill him, but I soon found out that he was able to take care of himself. I would turn over stones and dig into anthills for him, and he would lick up the ants so fast that a stream of them seemed going into his mouth unceasingly. I kept him till late in the fall when he disappeared, probably going south, and I never saw him again. My correspondent also sends me some interesting observations about the cuckoo. He says a large gooseberry bush standing in the border of an old hedgerow, in the midst of open fields and not far from his house, was occupied by a pair of cuckoos for the two seasons in succession and after an interval of a year for two seasons more. This gave him a good chance to observe them. He says the mother bird lays a single egg and sits upon it a number of days before laying the second, so that he has seen one young bird nearly grown, a second just hatched, and a whole egg all in the nest at once. So far as I have seen, this is the settled practice, the young leaving the nest one at a time to the number of six or eight. The young have quite the look of the young of the dove in many respects, when nearly grown, they are covered with long blue pin feathers, as long as darning needles, without a bit of plumage on them. They part on the back and hang down on each side by their own weight. With its curious feathers and misshapen body, the young bird is anything but handsome. They never open their mouths when approached, as many young birds do, but sit perfectly still, hardly moving when touched. He also notes the unnatural indifference of the mother bird when the nest and her young are approached. She makes no sound, but sits quietly on a near branch, in apparent perfect unconcern. These observations, together with the fact that the egg of the cuckoo is occasionally found in the nest of other birds, raise the inquiry whether our bird is slowly relapsing into the habit of the European species, which always foists its egg upon other birds, or whether, on the other hand, it be not mending its manners in this respect. It has but little to unlearn or forget in the one case, but great progress to make in the other. How far is its rudimentary nest, a mere platform of coarse twigs and dry stalks of weeds, from the deep, compact, finely woven and finely modeled nest of the goldfinch or kingbird, and what a gulf between its indifference towards its young and their solicitude. Its irregular manner of laying also seems better suited to a parasite like our cowbird or the European cuckoo than to a regular nest builder. 
This observer, like most sharp-eyed persons, sees plenty of interesting things as he goes about his work. He one day saw a white swallow, which is of rare occurrence. He saw a bird, a sparrow, he thinks, fly against the side of a horse and fill his beak with hair from the loosened coat of the animal. He saw a shrike pursue a chickadee when the latter escaped by taking refuge in a small hole in a tree. One day in early spring, he saw two hen hawks that were circling and screaming high in air, approach each other, extend a claw, and clasping them together, fall toward the earth, flapping and struggling as if they were tied together. On nearing the ground, they separated and soared aloft again. He supposed that it was not a passage of war, but of love, and that the hawks were toying fondly with each other. He further relates a curious circumstance of finding a hummingbird in the upper part of a barn with its bill stuck fast in a crack of one of the large timbers, dead, of course, with wings extended and as dry as a chip. The bird seems to have died as it had lived, on the wing, and its last act was indeed a ghastly parody of its living career. Fancy this nimble, flashing sprite whose life was passed probing the honeyed depths of flowers, at last thrusting its bill into a crack in a dry timber in a hayloft, and, with spread wings, ending its existence. When the air is damp and heavy, swallows frequently hawk for insects about cattle and moving herds in the field. My farmer describes how they attended him one foggy morning when he was mowing in the meadow with a mowing machine. It had been foggy for two days, and the swallows were very hungry, and the insects stupid and inert. When the sound of his machine was heard, the swallows appeared and attended him like a brood of hungry chickens. He says there was a continued rush of purple wings over the cut bar, and just where it was causing the grass to tremble and fall. Without his assistance, the swallows would doubtless have gone hungry yet another day. Of the hen hawk, he has observed that both male and female take part in incubation. I was rather surprised, he says, on one occasion to see how quickly they change places on the nest. The nest was in a tall beach and the leaves were not yet fully out. I could see the head and neck of the hawk over the edge of the nest when I saw the other hawk coming down through the air at full speed. I expected he would alight nearby, but instead of that, he struck directly upon the nest, his mate getting out of the way barely in time to avoid being hit. It seemed almost as if he had knocked her out of the nest. I hardly see how they can make such a rush of the nest without danger to the eggs. The kingbird will worry the hawk as a whiffet dog will worry a bear. It is by his persistence and audacity, not by any injury he is capable of dealing his great antagonist. The kingbird seldom more than dogs the hawk, keeping above and between his wings and making a great ado. But my correspondent says he once saw a kingbird riding on a hawk's back. The hawk flew as fast as possible and the kingbird sat upon his shoulders in triumph until they had passed out of sight, tweaking his feathers, no doubt, and threatening to scalp him the next moment. That near relative of the kingbird, the great crested flycatcher, has one well-known peculiarity. He appears never to consider his nest finished until it contains a cast-off snakeskin. My alert correspondent one day saw him eagerly catch up an onion skin and make off with it, either deceived by it or else thinking it a good substitute for the coveted material. One day in May, walking in the woods, I came upon a nest of a whippoorwill, or rather its eggs, for it builds no nests, two elliptical whitish spotted eggs lying upon the dry leaves. My foot was within a yard of the mother bird before she flew. I wondered what a sharp eye would detect curious or characteristic in the ways of the bird, so I came to the place many times and had a look. It was always a task to separate the bird from her surroundings, though I stood within a few feet of her and knew exactly where to look. One had to bear on with his eye, as it were, and refuse to be baffled. 
The sticks and leaves and bits of black or dark brown bark were all exactly copied in the bird's plumage. And then she did sit so close and simulate so well a shapeless decaying piece of wood or bark. Twice I brought a companion, and guiding his eye to the spot, noted how difficult it was for him to make out there, in full view upon the dry leaves, any semblance to a bird. When the bird returned after being disturbed, she would alight within a few inches of her eggs, and then, after a moment's pause, hobble awkwardly upon them. After the young had appeared, all the wit of the bird came into play. I was on hand the next day, I think. The mother bird sprang up when I was within a pace of her, and in doing so, fanned the leaves with her wings till they sprang up too. As the leaves started, the young started, and being of the same color, to tell which was the leaf and which was the bird was a trying task to any eye. I came the next day, when the same tactics were repeated. Once a leaf fell upon one of the young birds and nearly hid it. The young are covered with a reddish down, like a young partridge, and soon follow their mother about. When disturbed, they gave but one leap, then settled down, perfectly motionless and stupid, with eyes closed. The parent bird, on these occasions, made frantic efforts to decoy me away from her young. She would fly a few paces and fall upon her breast, and a spasm like that of death would run through her tremulous outstretched wings and prostrate body. She kept a sharp eye out the meanwhile to see if the ruse took, and if it did not, she was quickly cured and moving about to some other point, tried to draw my attention as before. When followed, she always alighted upon the ground, dropping down in a sudden peculiar way. The second or third day, both old and young had disappeared. The whippoorwill walks as awkwardly as a swallow, which is as awkward as a man in a bag, and yet she manages to lead her young about the woods. The latter, I think, move by leaps and sudden spurts, their protective coloring, shielding them most effectively. Wilson once came upon the mother bird and her brood in the woods, and though they were at his very feet, was so baffled by the concealment of the young that he was about to give up the search, much disappointed, when he perceived something like a slight moldiness among the withered leaves, and on stooping down discovered it to be a young whippoorwill, seemingly asleep. Wilson's description of the young is very accurate, as its downy covering does look precisely like a slight moldiness. Returning a few moments afterward to the spot to get a pencil he had forgotten, he could find neither old nor young. It takes an eye to see a partridge in the woods motionless upon the leaves. This sense needs to be as sharp as that of smell in hounds and pointers, and yet I know an unkempt youth that seldom fails to see the bird and shoot it before it takes wing. I think he sees it as soon as it sees him and before it suspects itself seen. What a training to the eye is hunting. To pick out the game from its surroundings, the grouse from the leaves, the gray squirrel from the mossy oak limb it hugs so closely, the red fox from the ruddy or brown or gray field, the rabbit from the stubble, or the white hare from the snow, requires the best powers of this sense. A woodchuck, motionless in the fields or upon a rock, looks very much like a large stone or boulder, yet a keen eye knows the difference at a glance a quarter of a mile away. A man has a sharper eye than a dog or a fox or than any of the wild creatures, but not so sharp an ear or nose. But in the birds he finds his match. How quickly the old turkey discovers the hawk, a mere speck against the sky, and how quickly the hawk discovers you if you happen to be secreted in the bushes or behind the fence near which he alights. One advantage the bird surely has, and that is, owing to the form, structure, and position of the eye, it has a much larger field of vision. 
indeed can probably see in nearly every direction at the same instant, behind as well as before. Man's field of vision embraces less than half a circle horizontally and still less vertically. His brow and brain prevent him from seeing within many degrees of the zenith without a movement of the head. The bird, on the other hand, takes in nearly the whole sphere at a glance. I find I see almost without effort nearly every bird within sight in the field or wood I pass through. A flit of the wing, a flirt of the tail are enough, though the flickering leaves do all conspire to hide them, and that with like ease the birds see me, though unquestionably the chances are immensely in their favor. The eye sees what it has the means of seeing, truly. You must have the bird in your heart before you can find it in the bush. The eye must have purpose and aim. No one ever yet found the walking fern who did not have the walking fern in his mind. A person whose eye is full of Indian relics picks them up in every field he walks through. One season, I was interested in the tree frogs, especially the tiny pipers that one hears about the woods and brushy fields. The hylas of the swamps become a denizen of the trees. I had never seen him in this new role. But this season, having them in mind, or rather being ripe for them, I several times came across them. One Sunday, walking amid some bushes, I captured two. They leaped before me, as doubtless they had done many times before. But though not looking for or thinking of them, yet they were quickly recognized, because the eye had been commissioned to find them. On another occasion, not long afterward, I was hurriedly loading my gun in the October woods in hope of overtaking a gray squirrel that was fast escaping through the treetops when one of these lilliput frogs, the color of the fast yellowing leaves, leaped near me. I saw him only out of the corner of my eye and yet bagged him because I had already made him my own. Nevertheless, the habit of observation is the habit of clear and decisive gazing, not by a first casual glance, but by a steady deliberate aim of the eye are the rare and characteristic things discovered. You must look intently and hold your eye firmly to the spot to see more than do the rank and file of mankind. The sharpshooter picks out his man and knows him with fatal certainty from a stump or a rock or a cap on a pole. The phrenologists do well to locate not only form, color, weight, etc. in the region of the eye, but a faculty which they call individuality, that which separates, discriminates, and sees in every object its essential character. This is just as necessary to the naturalist as to the artist or the poet. The sharp eye notes specific points and differences. It seizes upon and preserves the individuality of the thing. Persons frequently describe to me some bird they have seen or heard and ask me to name it. But in most cases, the bird might be any one of a dozen, or else it is totally unlike any bird found on this continent. They have either seen falsely or else vaguely. Not so the farm youth who wrote me one winter day that he had seen a single pair of strange birds, which he describes as follows. They were about the size of the chippy. The tops of their heads were red, and the breast of the male was of the same color, while that of the female was much lighter. Their rumps were also faintly tinged with red. If I have described them so that you would know them, please write me their names. There can be little doubt but the young observer had seen a pair of red poles, a bird related to the goldfinch, and that occasionally comes down to us in the winter from the far north. Another time, the same youth wrote me that he had seen a strange bird, the color of a sparrow, that alighted on fences and buildings as well as upon the ground, and that walked. This last fact showed the youth's discriminating eye and settled the case. I knew it to be a species of the lark, and from the size, color, season, etc., the titlark. 
But how many persons would have observed that the bird walked instead of hopped? Some friends of mine who lived in the country tried to describe to me a bird that built a nest in a tree within a few feet of the house. As it was a brown bird, I should have taken it for a wood thrush, had not the nest been described as so thin and loose that from beneath the eggs could be distinctly seen. The most pronounced feature in the description was the barred appearance of the underside of the bird's tail. I was quite at sea until one day when we were driving out, a cuckoo flew across the road in front of us. When my friends exclaimed, there is our bird. I had never known a cuckoo to build near a house, and I had never noted the appearance the tail presents when viewed from beneath. But if the bird had been described in its most obvious features as slender, with a long tail, cinnamon brown above and white beneath, with a curved bill, anyone who knew the bird would have recognized the portrait. We think we have looked at a thing sharply until we are asked for its specific features. I thought I knew exactly the form of the leaf of the tulip tree, until one day a lady asked me to draw the outline of one. A good observer is quick to take a hint and to follow it up. Most of the facts of nature, especially in the life of birds and animals, are well screened. We do not see the play because we do not look intently enough. The other day I was sitting with a friend upon a high rock in the woods, near a small stream, when we saw a water snake swimming across a pool toward the opposite bank. Any eye would have noted it, perhaps nothing more. A little closer and sharper gaze revealed the fact that the snake bore something in its mouth, which, as we went down to investigate, proved to be a small catfish, three or four inches long. The snake had captured it in the pool, and like any other fisherman, wanted to get its prey to dry land, although itself lived mostly in the water. Here, we said, is being enacted a little tragedy that would have escaped any but sharp eyes. The snake, which was itself small, had the fish by the throat, the hold of vantage among all creatures, and clung to it with great tenacity. The snake knew that its best tactics was to get upon dry land as soon as possible. It could not swallow its victim alive, and it could not strangle it in the water. For a while it tried to kill its game by holding it up out of the water, but the fish grew heavy, and every few moments its struggles brought down the snake's head. This would not do. Compressing the fish's throat, would not shut off its breath under such circumstances. So the wily serpent tried to get ashore with it, and after several attempts succeeded in effecting a landing on a flat rock. But the fish died hard. Catfish do not give up the ghost in a hurry. Its throat was becoming congested, but the snake's distended jaw must have ached. It was like a petrified gape. Then the spectators became very curious and close in their scrutiny, and the snake determined to withdraw from the public gaze and finish the business in hand to its own notions. But when gently but firmly remonstrated by my friend with his walking stick, it dropped the fish and retreated in high dungeon beneath a stone in the bed of the creek. The fish, with a swollen and angry throat, went its way also. Birds, I say, have wonderfully keen eyes. Throw a fresh bone or a piece of meat upon the snow in the winter and see how soon the crows will discover it and be on hand. If it be near the house or barn... The crow that first discovers it will alight near it, to make sure he is not deceived. Then he will go away, and soon return with a companion. The two alight a few yards from the bone, and after some delay, during which the vicinity is sharply scrutinized, one of the crows advances boldly to within a few feet of the coveted prize. Here he pauses, and if no trick is discovered, and the meat be indeed meat, he seizes it and makes off. One midwinter, I cleared away the snow under an apple tree near the house and scattered some corn there. I had not seen a blue jay for weeks, yet that very day they found my corn, 
And after that they came daily and partook of it, holding the kernels under their feet upon the limbs of the trees and pecking them vigorously. Of course the woodpecker and his kind have sharp eyes. Still, I was surprised to see how quickly Downey found out some bones that were placed in a convenient place under the shed to be pounded up for the hens. In going out to the barn, I often disturbed him making a meal off the bite of meat that was still adhered to them. Look intently enough at anything, said a poet to me one day, and you will see something that would otherwise escape you. I thought of the remark as I sat on a stump in an opening of the woods one spring day. I saw a small hawk approaching. He flew to a tall tulip tree and alighted on a large limb near the top. He eyed me and I eyed him. Then the bird disclosed a trait that was new to me. He hopped along the limb to a small cavity near the trunk when he thrust his head and pulled out some small object and fell to eating it. After he had partaken of it for some minutes, he put the remainder back in his larder and flew away. I had seen something like feathers eddying slowly down as the hawk ate and upon approaching the spot found the feathers of a sparrow here and there clinging to bushes beneath the tree. The hawk then, commonly called the chicken hawk, is as provident as a mouse or squirrel and lays by a store against a time of need, but I should not have discovered that fact had I not held my eye to him. An observer of the birds is attracted by any unusual sound or commotion among them. In May or June, when other birds are most vocal, the jay is a silent bird. He goes by sneaking about the orchards and the groves as silent as a pickpocket. He is robbing birds' nests, and he is very anxious that nothing should be said about it. But in the fall, none so quick and loud to cry, thief, thief, as he. One December morning, a troop of them discovered a little screech owl secreted in the hollow trunk of an old apple tree near my house. How they found the owl out is a mystery, since it never ventures forth in the light of day. But they did, and proclaimed the fact with great emphasis. I suspect the bluebirds first told them, for these birds are constantly peeping into holes and crannies both spring and fall. Some unsuspecting bird probably entered the cavity prospecting for a place for next year's nest, or else looking out a likely place to pass a cold night, when it has rushed out with important news. A boy who should unwittingly venture into a bear's den when Bruin was at home could not be more astonished and alarmed than a bluebird would be on finding itself in the cavity of a decayed tree with an owl. At any rate, the bluebirds joined the jays in calling the attention of all whom it might concern— to the fact that a culprit of some sort was hiding from the light of day in the old apple tree. I heard the notes of warning and alarm and approached to within eyeshot. The bluebirds were cautious and hovered about uttering their peculiar twittering calls, but the jays were bolder and took turns looking in at the cavity and deriding the poor shrinking owl. A jay would alight in the entrance of the hole and flirt and peer and attitudinize and then fly away crying, thief, 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 at the top of its voice. I climbed up and peered into the opening and could just descry the owl clinging to the inside of the tree. I reached in and took him out, giving little heed to the threatening snapping of his beak. He was as red as a fox and as yellow-eyed as a cat. He made no effort to escape but planted his claws in my forefinger and clung there with a grip that soon grew uncomfortable. I placed him in the loft of an outhouse in hopes of getting better acquainted with him. By day he was a very willing prisoner, scarcely moving at all, even when approached and touched with the hand, but looking out upon the world with half-closed, sleepy eyes. But at night, what a change! How alert! How wild! How active! He was like another bird. He darted about with wide, fearful eyes and regarded me like a cornered cat. I opened the window, and swiftly, but silently as a shadow, he glided out into the congenial darkness, 
and perhaps ere this has revenged himself upon the sleeping jay or bluebird that first betrayed his hiding place. The Apple Lo, sweetened with the summer light, the full-juiced apple waxing over mellow, drops in a silent autumn night. Tennyson Not a little of the sunshine of our northern winters is surely wrapped up in the apple. How could we winter over without it? How life is sweetened by its mild acids. A cellar well filled with apples is more valuable than a chamber filled with flax and wool. So much sound, ruddy life to draw upon, to strike one's roots down into, as it were. Especially to those whose soil of life is inclined to be a little clayey and heavy. Is the apple a winter necessity? It is the natural antidote of most of the ills the flesh is heir to. Full of vegetable acids and aromatics, qualities which act as refrigerants and antiseptics, what an enemy it is to the jaundice, indigestion, torpidity of liver, etc. It is a gentle spur and tonic to the whole biliary system. Then I have read that it has been found by analysis to contain more phosphorus than any other vegetable. This makes it the proper food of the scholar and the sedentary man. It feeds his brain and stimulates his liver. Neither is this all. Besides its hygienic properties, the apple is full of sugar and mucilage, which makes it highly nutritious. It is said, the operators of Cornwall, England, consider ripe apples nearly as nourishing as bread, and far more so than potatoes. In the year 1801, which was a year of much scarcity, apples, instead of being converted into cider, were sold to the poor, and the laborers asserted that they could stand their work on baked apples without meat whereas a potato diet required either meat or some other substantial nutriment. The French and Germans use apples extensively. So do the inhabitants of all European nations. The laborers depend on them as an article of food and frequently make a dinner of sliced apples and bread. Yet the English apple is a tame and insipid affair compared with the intense sun-colored and sun-steeped fruit our orchards yield. The English have no sweet apple, I am told, the saccharine element apparently being less abundant in vegetable nature in that sour and chilly climate than in our own. It is well known that the European maple yields no sugar, while both our birch and hickory have sweet in their veins. Perhaps this fact accounts for our extensive love of sweets, which may be said to be a national trait. The Russian apple has a lovely complexion, smooth and transparent, but the Cossack is not yet all eliminated from it. The only one I have seen, the Duchess of Oldenburg, is as beautiful as a Tartar princess, with a distracting odor, but it is the least bit puckery to the taste. The best thing I know about Chile is not its guano beds, but this fact which I learned from Darwin's voyage, namely that the apple thrives well there. Darwin saw a town there so completely buried in a wood of apple trees that its streets were merely paths in an orchard. The tree indeed thrives so well that large branches cut off in the spring and planted two or three feet deep in the ground send out roots and develop into fine, full-bearing trees by the third year. The people know the value of the apple, too. They make cider and wine of it, and then from the refuse a white and finely flavored spirit. Then, by another process, a sweet treacle is obtained called honey. The children and pigs eat little or no other food. He does not add that the people are healthy and temperate, but I have no doubt they are. We knew the apple had many virtues, but these Chileans have really opened a deep beneath a deep. 
We had found out the cider and the spirits, but who guessed the wine and the honey except it were bees? There is a variety in our orchard called the wine sap, a doubly liquid name that suggests what might be done with this fruit. The apple is the commonest and yet the most varied and beautiful of fruits. A dish of them is as becoming to the center table in winter as was the vase of flowers in the summer, a bouquet of Spitzenbergs and greenings and northern spies. A rose when it blooms, the apple is a rose when it ripens. It pleases every sense to which it can be addressed, the touch, the smell, the sight, the taste, and when it falls in the still October days, it pleases the ear. It is a call to the banquet. It is a signal that the feast is ready. The bough would fain hold it, but it can now assert its independence. It can now live a life of its own. Daily, the stem relaxes its hold till finally it lets go completely and down comes the painted sphere with a mellow thump to the earth toward which it has been nodding so long. It bounds away to seek its bed, to hide under a leaf or in a tuft of grass. It will now take time to meditate and ripen. What delicious thoughts it has there nestled with its fellows under the fence, turning acid into sugar and sugar into wine. How pleasing to the touch! I love to stroke its polished rondor with my hand, to carry it in my pocket on my tramp over the winter hills or through the early spring woods. You are company, you red-cheeked spits, or you salmon-fleshed greening. I toy with you, press your face to mine, toss you in the air, roll you on the ground, see you shine out where you lie amid the moss and dry leaves and sticks. You are so alive. You glow like a ruddy flower. You look so animated, I almost expect to see you move. I postpone the eating of you. You are so beautiful. How compact, how exquisitely tinted, stained by the sun and varnished against the rains. An independent vegetable existence, alive and vascular as my own flesh, capable of being wounded, bleeding, wasting away, or almost repairing damages. How they resist the cold, holding out almost as long as the red cheeks of the boys do. A frost that destroys the potatoes and other roots only makes the apple more crisp and vigorous. They peep out from the chance November snows unscathed. When I see the fruit vendor on the street corner stamping his feet and beating his hands to keep them warm, and his naked apples lying there exposed to the blasts, I wonder if they do not ache too to clap their hands and enliven their circulation. But they can stand it nearly as long as the vendor can. Noble common fruit, best friend of man and most loved by him, following him like his dog or his cow wherever he goes. His homestead is not planted till you are planted, your roots intertwined with his, thriving best where he thrives best. Loving the limestone and the frost, the plow and the pruning knife, you are indeed suggestive of hardy, cheerful industry and a healthy life in the open air. Temperate, chaste fruit, you mean neither luxury nor sloth, neither satiety nor indolence, neither enerving heats nor frigid zones. Uncloying fruit, fruit whose best sauce is the open air, whose finest flavors only he whose taste is sharpened by brisk work or walking knows. Winter fruit, when the fire of life burns brightest, fruit always a little hyperborean, leaning toward the cold, bracing, sub-acid, active fruit. I think you must come from the north. You are so frank and honest, so sturdy and appetizing. You are stocky and homely like the northern races. Your quality is Saxon. Surely the fiery and impetus south is not akin to thee. 
not spices or olives or the sumptuous liquid fruits, but the grass, the snow, the grains, the coolness is akin to thee. I think if I could subsist on you or the like of you, I should never have an intemperate or ignoble thought, never be feverish or despondent. So far as I could absorb or transmute your quality, I should be cheerful, continent, equitable, sweet-blooded, long-lived, and should shed warmth and contentment around. Is there any other fruit that has so much facial expression as the apple? What boy does not more than half believe they can see with the single eye of theirs? Do they not look and nod to him from the bough? The soir has one look, the rambo the other, the spy another. The youth recognizes the seek no further, buried beneath a dozen other varieties, the moment he catches a glance of its eye, or the bonny-cheeked Newtown Pippin, or the gentle but sharp-nosed Gilliflower. He goes to the great bin in the cellar and sinks his shafts there, and there in the garnered wealth of the orchards, mining for his favorites, sometimes coming plump upon them, sometimes catching a glimpse of them to the right or left, or uncovering them as keystones in an arch made up of many varieties. In the dark, he can usually tell them by the sense of touch. There is not only the size and shape, but there is the texture and polish. Some apples are coarse-grained and some are fine. Some are thin-skinned and some are thick. One variety is quick and vigorous beneath the touch, another gentle and yielding. The pinnock has a thick skin with a spongy lining. A bruise in it becomes like a piece of cork. The tallow apple has an unctuous feel, as its name suggests. It sheds water like a duck. What apple is that with a fit, curved stem that blends so prettily with its own flesh? The wine apple? Some varieties impress me as masculine, weather-stained, freckled, lasting, and rugged. Others are indeed lady apples, fair, delicate, shining, mild-flavored, white-meated, like the egg drop and lady finger. The practiced hand knows each kind by the touch. Do you remember the apple hole in the garden or back of the house, Ben Bolt? In the fall, after the bins in the cellar had been well stocked, we excavated a circular pit in the warm, mellow earth and covering the bottom with clean rye straw, emptied in basketful after basketful of hardy choice varieties till there was a tent-shaped mound several feet high of shining variegated fruit, then wrapping it about with a thick layer of long rye straw and tucking it up snug and warm, the mound was covered with a thin coating of earth a flat stone on the top holding down the straw. As winter set in, another coating of earth was put upon it, with perhaps an overcoat of coarse, dry stable manure, and the precious pile was left in silence and darkness till spring. No marmot hibernating underground in his nest of leaves and dry grass, more cozy and warm. No frost, no wet, but fragrant privacy and quiet. Then how the earth tempers and flavors the apples. It draws out all the acrid, unripe qualities, and infuses into them a subtle, refreshing taste of the soil. Some varieties perish, but the ranker, hardier kinds, like the northern spy, the greening, or the black apple, or the russet, or the pinnock, how they ripen and grow in grace, how the green becomes gold and the bitter becomes sweet. As the supply in the bins and barrels gets low and spring approaches, the buried treasures in the garden are remembered. With spade and axe we go out and penetrate through the snow and frozen earth till the inner dressing of straw is laid bare. It is not quite as clear and as bright as when we placed it in last fall, but the fruit beneath, which the hand soon exposes, is just as bright and far more luscious. Then, as day after day you resort to the hole, and removing the straw and earth from the opening, 
thrust your arm into the fragrant pit, you have a better chance than ever before to become acquainted with your favorites by the sense of touch. How you feel for them, reaching to the right and left. Now you've got a Tolman suite. You imagine you can feel the single meridian line that divides it into two hemispheres. Now a greening fills your hand. You feel its fine quality beneath its rough coat. Now you have hooked a soir and you recognize its full face. Now a Vandiver or a king rolls down from the apex above and you bag it at once. When you were a schoolboy, you stowed these away in your pockets and ate them along the road and at recess and again at noon. And they, in measure, corrected the efforts of the cake and pie with which your indulgent mother filled your lunch basket. The boy is indeed the true apple eater and is not to be questioned how he came by the fruit with which his pockets are filled. It belongs to him. His own juicy flesh craves the juicy flesh of the apple. Sap draws sap. His fruit-eating has little reference to the state of his appetite. Whether he be full of meat or empty of meat, he wants the apple just the same. Before meal or after meal, it never comes amiss. The farm boy munches apples all day long. He has nests of them in the haymow mellowing, to which he makes frequent visits. Sometimes old Brindle, having access through the open door, smells them out and makes short work of them. In some countries, the custom remains of placing a rosy apple in the hand of the dead, that they may find it when they enter paradise. In northern mythology, the giants eat apples to keep off old age. The apple is indeed the fruit of youth. As we grow old, we crave apples less. It is an ominous sign. When you are ashamed to be seen eating them on the street, when you can carry them in your pocket and your hand not constantly find its way to them, when your neighbor has apples and you have none, and you make no nocturnal visits to his orchard, when your lunch basket is without them, and you can pass a winter's night by the fireside with no thought of the fruit at your elbow, then be assured you are no longer a boy, either in heart or years. The genuine apple eater comforts himself with an apple in their season as others with a pipe or cigar. When he has nothing else to do or is bored, he eats an apple. When he is waiting for the train, he eats an apple, sometimes several of them. When he takes a walk, he arms himself with apples. His traveling bag is full of apples. He offers an apple to his companion and takes one himself. They are his chief solace when on the road. He sows their seed all along the route. He tosses the core from the car window and from the top of the stagecoach. He would in time make the land one vast orchard. He dispenses with a knife. He prefers that his teeth shall have the first taste. Then he knows the best flavor is immediately beneath the skin and that in a pared apple that is lost. If you will stew the apple, he says, instead of baking it, by all means leave the skin on. It improves the color and vastly heightens the flavor of the dish. The apple is a masculine fruit, hence women are poor apple eaters. It belongs to the open air and requires an open air taste and relish. I instantly sympathized with that clergyman I read of, who on pulling out of his pocket handkerchief in the midst of his discourse, pulled out two bouncing apples with it that went rolling across the pulpit floor and down the pulpit stairs. These apples were no doubt to be eaten after the sermon on his way home or to his next appointment. They would take the taste of it out of his mouth. Then would a minister be apt to grow tiresome with two big apples in his coattail pockets? Would he not naturally hasten along to lastly and the big apples? If they were the Domini apples and it was April or May, he certainly would. How the early settlers prized the apple. When their trees broke down or were split asunder by storms, the neighbors turned out, the divided tree was put together again and fastened with iron bolts. 
In some of the oldest orchards, one may still occasionally see a large dilapidated tree with a rusty iron bolt yet visible. Poor, sour fruit, too, but sweet in those early pioneer days. My grandfather, who is one of the heroes of the stump, used every fall to make a journey of forty miles for a few apples, which he brought home in a bag on horseback. He frequently started from home by two or three o'clock in the morning, and at one time both himself and horse were much frightened by the screaming of panthers in a narrow pass in the mountains through which the road led. Emerson, I believe, has spoken of the apple as the social fruit of New England. Indeed, what a promoter or a better of social intercourse among our rural population the apple has been, the company growing more merry and unrestrained as soon as the basket of apples was passed round. When the cider followed, the introduction and the good understanding were complete. Then those rural gatherings that enlivened the autumn in the country, known as apple cuts, now, alas, nearly obsolete, where so many things were cut and dried besides apples. The larger and more loaded the orchard, the more frequently the invitations went round, and the higher the social and convivial spirit ran. Ours is eminently a country of the orchard. Horace Greenlee said he had seen no land in which the orchard formed such a prominent feature in the rural and agricultural districts. Nearly every farmhouse in the eastern and northern states has its setting or its background of apple trees, which generally date back to the first settlement of the farm. Indeed, the orchard, more than almost any other thing, tends to soften and humanize the country and give the place of which it is an adjunct a settled domestic look. The apple tree takes the rawness and wildness off any scene. On the top of a mountain or in remote pastures, it sheds the sentiment of home. It never loses its domestic air or lapses into a wild state. And in planting a homestead or in choosing a building site for the new house, what a help it is to have a few old maternal apple trees nearby, regular old grandmothers who have seen trouble, who have been sad and glad through so many winters and summers, who have blossomed till the air about them is sweeter than elsewhere, and borne fruit till the grass beneath them has become thick and soft from human contact, and who have nourished robins and finches in their branches till they have a tender, brooding look. The ground, the turf, the atmosphere of an old orchard seem several stages nearer to man than that of an adjoining field, as if the trees had given back to the soil more than they had taken from it, as if they had tempered the elements, and attracted all the genial and beneficent influences in the landscape around. An apple orchard is sure to bear you several crops beside the apple. There is the crop of sweet and tender reminiscences, dating from childhood and spanning the seasons from May to October, and making the orchard a sort of outlying part of the household. You have played there as a child, mused there as a youth or lover, strolled there as a thoughtful, sad-eyed man. Your father, perhaps planted the trees, or reared them from seed, and you yourself have pruned and grafted them and worked among them till every separate tree has a peculiar history and a meaning in your mind. Then there is the never-failing crop of birds, robins, goldfinches, kingbirds, cedarbirds, harebirds, orioles, starlings, all nesting and breeding in its branches, and fitly described by Wilson Flagg as birds of the garden and orchard. Whether the pippin and sweet bough bear or not, the punctual birds can always be depended on. Indeed, there are few better places to study ornithology than in the orchard. Besides its regular occupants, many of the birds of the deeper forest find occasion to visit it during the season. 
The cuckoo comes for the tent caterpillar, the jay for frozen apples, the ruffed grouse for buds, the crows foraging for birds' eggs, the woodpecker and chickadees for their food, and the high hole for ants. The red bird comes too, if only to see what a friendly covert its branches form. And the wood thrush now and then comes out of the grove nearby and nests alongside of its cousin the robin. The smaller hawks know that this is a most likely spot for their prey, and in spring the shy northern warblers may be studied as they pause to feed on the fine insects amid its branches. The mice love to dwell here too, and hither come from the near woods the squirrels and rabbit. The latter will put its head through the boy's slipper noose any time for a taste of the sweet apple, and the red squirrel and chipmunk esteem its seeds a great rarity. All the domestic animals love the apple, but none so much as the cow. The taste of it wakes her up as few other things do, and bars and fences must be well looked after. No need to assort them or pick out the ripe ones for her. An apple is an apple, and there is no best about it. I heard of a quick-witted old cow that learned to shake them down from the tree. While rubbing herself, she had observed that an apple sometimes fell. This stimulated her to rub a little harder when more apples fell. She then took the hint and rubbed her shoulder with such vigor that the farmer had to check her and keep an eye on her to save his fruit. But the cow is the friend of the apple. How many trees she has planted about the farm, in the edge of the woods, and in remote fields and pastures. The wild apples celebrated by Thoreau are mostly of her planting. She browses them down to be sure, but they are hers, and why should she not? What an individuality the apple tree has, each variety being nearly as marked by its form as by its fruit. What a vigorous grower, for instance, is the Ribston Pippin, an English apple. Wide branching like the oak and its large ridgy fruit in late fall or early winter is one of my favorites. Or the thick and more pendant top of the bellflower with its equally rich, sprightly, uncloying fruit. Sweet apples are perhaps the most nutritious and when baked are a feast of themselves. With a tree of the Jersey sweet or of Tolman's sweeting in bearing, no man's table need be devoid of luxuries and one of the most wholesome of all desserts. Or the red astrachan, an August apple. What a gap may be filled in the culinary department of a household at this season by a single tree of this fruit. And what a feast is its shining crimson coat to the eye before its snow-white flesh has reached the tongue. But the apple of apples for the household is the Spitzenberg. In this casket, Pomona has put her highest flavors. It can stand the ordeal of cooking and still remain a spitz. I recently saw a barrel of these apples from the orchard of a fruit grower in the northern part of New York, who has devoted special attention to this variety. They were perfect gems. Not large, that had not been the aim, but small, fair, uniform, and red to the core. How intense, how spicy, and aromatic. But all the excellences of the apple are not confined to cultivated fruit. Occasionally, a seedling springs up about the farm that produces fruit of rare beauty and worth. In sections peculiarly adapted to the apple, like a certain belt along the Hudson River, I have noticed that most of the wild, unbidden trees bear good, edible fruit. In cold and ungenial districts, the seedlings are mostly sour and crabbed, but in more favorable soils, they are oftener mild and sweet. I know wild apples that ripen in August and that do not need, if it could be had, Thoreau's sauce of sharp November air to be eaten with. 
At the foot of a hill near me, and striking its roots deep in the shale, is a giant specimen of native tree that bears an apple that has about the clearest, waxiest, most transparent complexion I ever saw. It is good size and the color of a tea rose. Its quality is best appreciated in the kitchen. I know another seedling of excellent quality and so remarkable for its firmness and density that it is known on the farm where it grows as the heavy apple. I have alluded to Thoreau, to whom all lovers of the apple and its trees are under obligation. His chapter on wild apples is a most delicious piece of writing. It has a tang and smack like the fruit it celebrates and is dashed and streaked with color in the same manner. It has the hue and perfume of the crab and the richness and raciness of the pippin. But Thoreau loved other apples than the wild sorts and was obliged to confess that his favorites could not be eaten indoors. Late in November, he found a blue permane tree growing within the edge of a swamp almost as good as wild. You would not suppose, he says, that there was any fruit left there on the first survey, but you must look according to system. Those which lie exposed are quite brown and rotten now, or perchance a few still show one blooming cheek here and there amid wet leaves. Nevertheless, with experienced eyes, I explore amid the bare alders and the huckleberry bushes and the withered sedge and the crevices of the rocks which are full of leaves and pry under the fallen and decayed ferns, which with apple and alder leaves thickly strew the ground. For I know that they lie concealed, fallen into hollows long since, and covered up by leaves of the tree itself, a proper kind of packaging. From these lurking places everywhere within the circumference of the tree, I draw forth the fruit, all wet and glossy, maybe nibbled by rabbits and hollowed out by crickets, and perhaps a leaf or two cemented to it, as Curzon, an old manuscript from a monastery's moldy cellar but still with a rich bloom on it, and at least as ripe and well-kept, if no better than those in barrels, more crisp and lively than they. If these resources fail to yield anything, I have learned to look between the leaves of the suckers which spring thickly from some horizontal limb, for now and then one lodges there, or in the very midst of an alder clump, where they are covered by leaves, safe from crows which may have smelled them out. If I am sharp set, for I do not refuse blue permane. I fill my pocket on each side, and as I retrace my steps in the frosty eve, being perhaps four or five miles from home, I eat one first from this side, then from that, to keep my balance. Natural History Stories, a podcast of classic writings on natural history and nature observation, is produced and narrated by me, Pete Ryan. This is a Planting Natives podcast.